0: Well, again, if you would uh, take out your Bible, let's turn to Psalm 19, Psalm 19 for our text this day. One of the reasons this was chosen uh, is uh, we plan on starting a a series in Genesis, and so this is a good sort of precursor to that, Um, in particular thinking about how God has revealed himself in nature and through His Word. So, Psalm 19. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant Word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It's rising is from the end, of the end of the heavens, and it's circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Declare me innocent from my faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains. Forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We ask, O God, that you would bless the preaching of your word. Be with this your servant. As David said, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. May we learn from you this Lord's day. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. One of the joys of living in a rural area like we do is that we get to see the night sky more of the stars. Because when you live in the city, you can't see a lot of the stars. I mean, you see a few. But many of the stars are, are... sort of blurred out because of all of the streetlights. So the, the, the light of the sky is washed out. When you gaze up at the sky, when you begin to contemplate the vastness of the universe, how the stars in the sky, how the sun and the moon and all the planets of the galaxy, how all of these things fit together, how vast and grand the universe is, is one ought to be in awe of God. We ought to be in awe of God's majesty, that God who created this massive universe which is, which is grand, is even more majestic and great. Now, of course, many in our present world will tell you that this is all an accident. Those committed to unbelief will tell you that the cosmos is without meaning or purpose and is nothing more than a random assortment of protons and neutrons. But this is, at least in part, what the Apostle Paul calls suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The scriptures declare that the whole of creation, the cosmos, and all that is in it proclaims the glory of its creator. But this, the created order of the universe, is only one of two ways in which God has revealed himself. God reveals himself in this creation, but he also declares himself in his word. God revealed himself, first of all, through what we might call natural revelation, or sometimes it's called general revelation. That is the created and ordered universe. This is the general revelation which anyone, any person can observe through a study of the world. All you have to do is open your eyes and look around or touch something, and you can experience something of this. Sometimes theologians will refer to this as the book of nature. This is the first and most easily observed revelation of God. And everyone in the world has experienced this to some level or other. The second, and most critically, God has revealed himself by what is sometimes called a special revelation. That is, he has revealed himself through his word, spoken through the apostles and through the prophets and inscripturated for us in the uh, scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. The special revelation finds, as its ultimate in, the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Word made flesh. In special revelation, God has spoken directly to his people. And as a believer then contemplates these two kinds of revelation, the psalmist David declares that this ought to lead us to worship and glorify God in response to it. And this is what we're looking at today. God's revelation of himself in creation and God's revelation of himself through his word and the proper response of God's people to that revelation, namely, worship and glory to God. And so that really is our basic outline today. And so we open our study in verse 1 with this. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Now I want you to notice... Psalm 19 doesn't open the way many of the other psalms do, with praise or even a call to praise. It begins with the awesome creative work of God. When one looks at the vastness of the heavens, we ought to see God's glory in it. All of us have experienced this. All of us have you know, sat under the night sky and you know, maybe maybe laid out on the grass and you, you looked at the stars. And you have this feeling of being sort of overwhelmed with the, the grandeur and awesomeness, how big the world is and how tiny you are. Creation itself speaks to the fact that there is a Creator. As a matter of fact, uh, Romans 1, as we read, the world is without excuse. It's so clear in creation that the world has no excuse. The Scriptures don't need to prove the reality and existence of the Creator God. This can be taken as a presupposition because the world itself already gives evidence of God's power and divine nature. It is in fact inexcusable to deny God's power and glory. The Apostle Paul wrote of this as well as we read in Romans chapter 1 for his invisible attributes, namely, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things which have been made, so they are without excuse. The whole world can see clearly the reality of the Creator. So after this introductory material, then, the psalm begins with the heavens declare. The, the vast universe is speaking. Now immediately, as we see this, the poetry is, uh, of the psalm is presenting us with a bit of surprise. The universe, an inanimate object, is Communicating, it's speaking in some sense. The heavens are suddenly uh, proclaiming or or pouring forth speech. Now, of course, we understand that the heavens do not audibly speak. Now, uh, this the genre of this of, uh, of this literature, of course, is psalm, the psalms are poetry. So this is, this is poetic. What David is saying is that the heavens themselves, their, their very existence, the fact that they are are a proclamation of God's creative power and His glory. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament proclaims the works of His hands. Now, you should probably note this. Our English translations, in some ways, obscure this. But there is a clear reference to to the creation narrative of Genesis 1 One, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the continual cry of nature from the very first moment of creation up to this present time and will continue on into the future is that God has made all that there is and God is very glorious. And so the universe speaks to this. Verse 2, day after day, and night after night. Day after day. Just as God had created in the span of six days, and made all things good and very good, forming the universe by the power of His Word, all of creation is pouring out speech. Day after day. When God entered into rest on the seventh day, it does not mean that the universe ceased declaring God's glory. But God had begun through his creative word, continues on to this day, pouring forth speech, declaring the glory of God. And this phrase here, pours out speech, provides a bit of a word picture of a, a fast-flowing uh, or bubbling stream. And consider uh, if you if any of you are hikers you go out to, to the various springs that you might find throughout the Ozarks where water is constantly bubbling up and, and flowing into a stream and eventually flows into a river and that water in some in some of these uh, springs is moving very quickly constant well creation it is constantly making itself known just as the moving waters of the stream are making themselves known as you hear it. Each and every day the creation itself continues to speak of God's creative imagination. This is happening every day, everywhere. And in the psalm, the sun is particularly highlighted in verses 4 through 6. But the story the heavens are telling is not confined to the daylight hours alone. The day and the night reveal something. The nightly display of the stars, the planets, and the sky. This is a display of the knowledge of God. David, in fact, wrote of this wonder in gazing at the night sky in Psalm 8, where he says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You speak about sitting, looking at the night sky, feeling overwhelmed. David felt that. And yet, he also glorified God in it. And so in the poetic parallelism of verse 2, the the nighttime knowledge is equivalent to the daytime speech, pouring forth like a babbling creek. And further, the Hebrew construction of day after day and night after night emphasizes the continuity of God's continued revelation in nature. God is constantly revealing himself in His created order. And so this is the point. God's creation constantly speaks of God's glory. And yet, verse three, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is heard. And so the heavens and the earth testify to the glory of God, and they do this without audibly speaking. It is not that the earth is talking to us in an audible sense. There's no human voice or no voice that can be heard. The language which creation uses surpasses any human language in the sense that anyone in the world, regardless of what language you speak, anyone in the world can understand this. Which is why Paul's point in Romans 1, that's why they're without excuse. The world is without excuse when it comes to worshipping the one true God, because the created world itself is a clear testimony to them. They're aware by observing the world of the existence and power of God. And so no human being is without excuse for failing to worship and recognize the Lord. And so there may not be an audible voice to be heard in the world, but, but the whole of creation is speaking. And this is established more pointedly in verse 4, where it says, Their voice goes out throughout the earth, and their words to the end of the world. World. And so creation itself, which has left everyone without excuse to their belief, but it is proclaiming to all the people the reality of God's power and His glory, which is His due. All of humanity is already convicted of the knowledge of God, but the fact remains that many in our world are not worshipping the Lord, but are instead in rebellion against Him. Of course, this proclamation from nature is enough to convict, convict us of sin. We can come to a knowledge that God exists, that He is owed worship, that we uh, have fallen short of His glory. But it is not enough to bring one to a knowledge of salvation. You can't go take a, a walk in the woods and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus. As, as pleasant as a walk in the woods may be. And so there's a necessity for the gospel to be Preached. There's a necessity for God's Word to be proclaimed. It is here that David incorporates a metaphor using the sun. The sun, of course, is a feature of the sky and demonstrates the glory and goodness of God and has done this since the fourth day of creation when the sun was made. The sun is necessary for life to exist on our planet. It warms the planet. It allows plants to grow and trees to grow. In a poetic metaphor, the sun resides in a tent which is pitched in heaven. It's like a bridegroom departing his marriage chamber, and it's also like a champion who's running a race. And so this bridegroom uh, champion departs his tent, and he begins to run a course across the sky like an athlete running a race, dressed in his finest and joyfully beaming for the magnificence, for the magnificent occasion. Because wedding is, is a wedding is a, is a time of great celebration. And so is the rising of the sun. Every day is a cause for joy, for this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And so the sun, like the metaphoric strong man, rejoices in the race, shining brightly and bringing life and warmth. And so continuing with a metaphor, as the sun makes its way across the sky from east to west, from one end of the sky to the other, on a circuit, there is nothing which is hidden from its heat. No one can be outside and remain unaffected by the presence of the sun. Now when the sun goes down, there is an impact. The temperature will drop. Except for in the Midwest probably the only place I've ever lived where uh, the temperature could go up during the night and down during the day, but everywhere else in the world the sun warms and illumines all that people say and do God's glory and power are visible in his creative works these signs cannot be ignored or if they are ignored they're ignored to your own peril For just as nothing can be hidden from the heat of the sun, nothing is hidden from God. Just as one cannot hide from the heat of the sun, one cannot hide from the wrath and judgment of God, which is to come. And this is the point that David is making. God has revealed himself to the world, though all of the world is without excuse, and all the world can't hide from God. Nothing will be hidden from him. all of humanity will is without excuse because they 're able to discern god 's goodness and power and Of course, this is not enough. this is only enough or this is only enough to condemn us it 's not enough to save us because nothing is hidden from God. Our sin is not hidden from God, but thankfully, God does not leave his creation there, does he when man fell in rebellion against him. But he has revealed himself in his word. He has made the way for salvation. For those who know God through his creative work and the constant divine examination uh, uh, illustrated by the sun's daily march across the sky, there's still further need of guidance. How can man know God's will? How can man know God's expectations if God does not reveal himself in his word? Therefore, God gave his Torah or his law. This section of the psalm in verse 7 begins very generally. It says that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. What David does in verses 7 through 9 is describe the Word of God and the impact it has in six couplets. And so David begins with God's Word, His law, which is perfect. God's Word is perfect, it is complete, it is without blemish. There's no failing in God's Word. Everything from God is complete perfection and flawless and perfectly wise. In fact, not only is God's law perfect, but God's law also revives the soul. The Torah causes people to turn and to repent because the law shows, at least one of the purposes of the law, one of the purposes of the law is to show to man what God requires of him. In fact, this is what the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number three, uh, teaches us. What do the Scriptures principally teach? The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. This is the most basic purpose of God's word. And so, this is one use of the law. One of the use of the law is to guide human behavior, but in particular, it's to guide the behavior for the believer. The law reveals to man God's will and calls us to faithfulness in Him. Of course, it also shows us that we are incapable of our, on our own to follow the law. That we, we can't, we are in need of a Savior, and so it also shows us our need for Jesus. This is how the law can revive the soul. It's not that the law itself uh, does this by itself, it's that Jesus does this as He fulfills the law on our behalf. And then guides us by His Word. Because the Torah is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, God's Word can be trusted to be true. Because it is true. The testimonies of the Lord are sure. They are a firm foundation. They are all we need for human life and flourishing. You and I are made wise because of the wisdom of God. The psalmist says that the Word of God makes wise the simple. Now in saying this, he's not not talking about the mentally challenged when he says the simple. He's talking about the immature. What he's talking about is you and me. You and I simply need to grow in our knowledge and wisdom and insights of the Lord. We need to know God's Word. We need to grow in God's Word. We need God's wisdom. This is the teaching of the Scripture. God's people need to know His Word. Proverbs uh, Proverbs 1 says, To know wisdom and instruction, to understand words of insight, to receive instruction in wise dealing, in righteousness, justice, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, knowledge and discretion to the youth. Or 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing which, from, what, from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is where the Scriptures lead us to. The use of faith in Christ Salvation found in Him. In verse 8, we see the law is likened to precepts which if followed will lead on to the goal of right living. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The directions of the Lord are not leading us on crooked paths. The Lord doesn't lead us on crooked paths. God is not misleading. God does not take us on a wild goose chase through life. The precepts of the Lord are straight. They are right. They guide you like a roadmap through life, leading you to the place of joy. People are always seeking happiness. They try to find fulfillment in the things of the world. But these are crooked and false paths. They don't lead to joy. These paths lead to destruction. Joy is found in the Lord, and the Lord leads us to that in his word. Therefore, the law of God is not restrictive. It's not that God is to kill joy. He does not desire to cause you to be miserable in this life, though you will suffer in this life. No, His law is good, and from it we find that which pleases Him. So the law is like a guardrail keeping us from harm, spiritual harm. The law shows us our need for a Savior. It points us to the place of righteousness in Christ. It, 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 and in Christ, there is true joy for the heart. This is where it leads. This is where the word leads to. It leads to to true joy found in the Savior Jesus Christ. At the end of verse eight, then it says, "The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes." Here, the psalmist reconnects with the imagery of the sun from earlier. Like radiant light which causes our eyes to see, the commandments of the Lord are pure and allow us to see reality for what it actually is. The law of God illuminates dark places. It illuminates dark souls. points the spiritually dead to life. The word of God is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, Psalm 119, verse 105, reminds us. The radiance of the light provides the eyes of the elect a light which guides our way, guiding us to Christ. To give enlightenment to the eyes means to enliven, to restore life, since the eyes of the spiritually dead are darkened. Unable to see the truth. The last two couplets in verse 9, though, see a change in the pattern. Instead of Torah or the word, the psalmist here uses fear, the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, this is a characteristic of the believer. The fear of the Lord is clean enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. To fear the Lord is to have an attitude of humility, faithfulness, dependence on the Lord. The fear of the Lord, the Proverbs teach, is the beginning of wisdom. What is being described here is the effect that the Word of God has on the believer. The Word... Creates in the believer the fear of the Lord, and this is clean, this is pure, this is holy, and this will endure. The rules of the Lord are true, they are righteous. There is no fault to be found in God's statutes or his rules. Though, in in fact, there is great beauty to be found in God's law. Since the word of God is pure and sure, right, uh, perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true, providing revival for the soul, wisdom, joy in the heart, light for the eyes, with everlasting endurance, and is altogether righteousness. This is beautiful. This is what the Word is, the believer. And because of this, verse 10, the Word is more to be desired than gold, even the finest gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings from the honeycomb. This is how wonderful the Word is. The Word of God is precious. It is a precious resource for the human being because in it we are given the wisdom and revelation of God. God has revealed Himself to us. In the Word we find the character of God. In the Word we see how we are to live in a world which is difficult and full of all kinds of miseries, all kinds of wickedness and difficulties. And so the psalmist here heaps praise on God's Word indicating that its value is beyond even the most precious of metals. Pure gold. It is finer, it is sweeter than even the most delectable sweetness even sweeter than the honey dripping from the honeycomb. These are valuable things which the psalmist says pale in great comparison to the Word of God. There is nothing, there is nothing as valuable to man as the Word of God. Silver, gold, Precious goods of this present world. These are of no value in comparison to the Word of the Lord. This is why often when we work with people who have financial needs, we try to point out to them that their greatest need is not the physical needs of this world. It may be a need they have, but it's not their greatest need. Their greatest need is spiritual in nature. What they need is the Word of God. Our souls need spiritual feeding. Our souls need spiritual feeding, just like your body needs physical feeding. You need to be fed with the Word of God. I hope you see the Word of God is more precious to you than anything that you have. When we begin to view the Word of God as the nourishing goodness that it is, it will change our, our outlook on life. We will crave the Word of God just as you might crave a, a delectable sweetness. For in the Word we grow in our knowledge and understanding of our King and our Lord and our God. And so then this brings us to our final heading. As we consider the the vastness of the universe and God's uh, creative imagination, as we consider the wonders of His Word as God has revealed Himself and the, the preciousness of the Word of God and all the ways in which it blesses us and brings us joy, we come then to the response of men. How should... We respond to God. Now, the Word of God, the Word of the Lord, the psalmist tells us, has a warning and a promise of great reward. A warning and a promise. And what are those, these, those great rewards? Well, the psalmist gives the answer by posing this question Who can discern his errors? Who can discern his errors? Now the answer, of course, is obvious. Only God can discern the, the heart of men. And the heart of man is what? It's sinful. It's wicked. This is why the psalmist then desires to be called innocent from hidden faults. This is the benefit. You might, you know, somebody might think, wait a minute, you're telling me that being told I'm a sinner is the benefit? Yes, it is. Because what the psalmist realizes then, and what he's asking for, is salvation. What he's asking for is a heart which is brought into conformity to the will of God. This is why he says in verse 13, Keep back your servant also from presumption of sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Let me not be ruled by sin. And so the great benefit found in the word of God is the salvation which God provides in Christ. The saints of the old covenant looked forward to the coming of the Messiah who would bring about their deliverance. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And that Redeemer has come in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the response of the believer who trusts in the Word of God is to desire to live in a way which pleases the Lord, to be transformed by God, to be renewed after the image of Christ. The desire of the heart of the follower of God is to repent of their error, to repent of their sin, to be kept away from sin, to be found blameless and innocent before the Lord, to be acceptable before God. Because natural man is lost and alienated from God in their rebellion against their Creator. And as we've already said there, without excuse... What is needed? That is to be made a new creature, to be forgiven, to be renewed. This is the prayer of the psalmist. This is what David is praying for. But notice that David—he does not only want to be forgiven. He's not saying, "Well, I do all these bad things, so forgive those." But I'm going to keep doing those bad things. That's not what he's asking for. Notice this—he wants to be changed. He wants to be transformed. He wants a new heart. This is why he prays that he may be kept from presumptuous sins. This is why he does not want these sins to have dominion over his life. This is why he prays that he will be blameless and innocent. This beloved congregation of Jesus Christ is the prayer that all those who walk in the fear of the Lord ought to have. This is our prayer. This is your prayer and my prayer. That we would be changed and transformed and kept from sin. That we would be sanctified by the Holy Spirit in Christ. This is the aim of the Christian to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. To turn from our sin and turn and be refreshed and renewed in in the Lord with a desire to always follow the Lord. But this is only done through the power of the Holy Spirit in your heart. The walking in righteousness ought to be the desire for every believer in Jesus Christ. And this is then the final plea of the psalmist when he declares in verse 14 "Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O Lord my rock and my redeemer when one begins to understand the problem that I am sinful and God is holy and righteous that God does not just sort of Overlook sin, sort of wink at sin, and we, we we see that we have sinned. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We begin to see the difficulty of being acceptable in God's sight on our own, in our own power. We cannot be made. We cannot on our on ourselves become acceptable in God's sight. We need to be transformed by the Spirit of God. And the law of God, as we have seen, has condemned us. We are incapable of keeping it perfectly. And so what is needed is sacrifice. What is needed is death on our behalf. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23 tells us. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And this is our hope. The true Christian's heart desire to live in a way pleasing before the Lord is only possible by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one who came and lived perfectly, perfectly pleasing before the Lord. He is the one who fulfilled all aspects of the law which we could not and cannot. By faith we are reconciled to God in the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our response to God's revelation and creation and His Word which is revealed to us is to worship Him and give Him glory. To live by faith. Because our blamelessness before God, our being made perfect is only possible by faith in Christ. He is the one who came to set the captives free. This, beloved congregation, is the good news of the Gospel. Jesus is the Lamb of God, sacrifice, who is a sacrifice Himself which was suitable before God to forgive us our sins. And we are His people by grace through faith. And so our response to God as His people, as we look at the heavens, as we consider the declaration. Of, of the heavens and of, of his word is to give him all glory, of gloria, to glory to God alone. We worship him, worship by faith in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Worship the Lord, knowing that as all of creation speaks, God Himself has spoken, and He's calling you, and He's calling me to His worship. He's calling us to rest and trust in Jesus Christ, our Savior, who has made you, by faith, acceptable before God. And really, isn't this the point? God has revealed Himself in all of creation. God has revealed Himself through His Word, written down for us in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, And the response of the people then is to worship Him and give Him all glory. When you and I consider the awesomeness of God, His majesty, His grandeur, how how God, how transcendent God is, and we also further consider the wicked state of human beings and further that God doesn't owe us anything. Sometimes we think that we, we're presumptuous of our own salvation. It's amazing that God has made himself known to us and has sought to rescue some them his children. When you consider all that, you consider the greatness of the universe, and you consider the greatness of God, and you consider the greatness of our own sin, it, in a sense that God would even bother with us. How awesome that really is son of God came to reconcile sinners and to reconcile the whole cosmos to himself. And as a conquering king he has subdued us to himself but he didn't subdue us to simply make us slaves. He subdued us to make us sons by adoption through Christ. We are saved by grace through faith and he does he has earned the way for us. We don't have to earn our way he has done that for us. And thus Jesus says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor in our heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus is inviting us into his rest. He says to take his yoke upon and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest in your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is life. Light. Beloved, find your rest in Christ. He is your Savior, who by His Word and Spirit makes you acceptable for God. Rest in Him. For our Lord is like a gentle shepherd. He does not crush us, He restores us to life. And for that, we give Him all praise and glory. We do so with joyful hearts for the salvation that He has given to us. Rest in Christ. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this psalm which we have studied together. And what an encouragement it is to consider not only uh, the, the vastness of your created order, but how you revealed yourself in your word. And most critically, through Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Redeemer, our rock. Help us, O God, to find our rest in Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.